I'm Brian Fierce. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And you're listening to Rural Roots. A Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? The episode we have for you today is the second part of our exploration of the growing opioid crisis in rural Canada. Last time we heard two personal stories. Stephen Miller from Grand Bank on Newfoundland's Buren Peninsula shared his story of addiction and recovery. And then we had Susan Boone and uh, Brian Rees from Bell Island, um, and which is just a short ferry ride here from St. John's, and they told us about a community harm reduction initiative and needle exchange program that they are part of. Yeah, so we got to hear sort of the personal experience side of what's happening um, in the last episode. Today we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the causes, potential solutions, the scope of the opioid crisis, and also initiatives that are helping so we're going to hear stories from Northern Ontario, uh, a rural region around Ottawa. We'll also hear about an awareness and education program uh, taking place in Ohio in the States. And we are going to talk to a researcher who is a part of Ontario Drug Policy Research Network and has some valuable insights into the issues surrounding opioid use in rural areas in Ontario, but also across the country. Yep. So let's start with our friends in Ohio. It's a story about two organizations that normally wouldn't have too much in common, but that were brought together because of the opioid crisis in rural Ohio. Yeah, and the two people we are going to hear from is uh, Michelle Specht. Uh, She is the director of the Ohio Farm Bureau, serving Carroll, Harrison, Jefferson, and Tuscarawa counties, and Jody Salvo, who coordinates Tuscarawa Anti-Drug Coalition, and she's also a chairperson of the Ohio State Prevention Coalition Association. So for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the Farm Bureau, all you need to know is that in the United States, they are the largest not-for-profit farm organization, and they run all sorts of programs. Most importantly, they create policy on a county level, which then they, they then try to implement on state and federal levels. Um, And in Ohio, in 2015, they focused on opioid prevention. And they had a really good reason for it, unfortunately. And uh, maybe I'll let Michelle describe what the situation was in Ohio uh, in 2015-2016. In the year 2016, Ohio was ranked number one in the United States for overdose deaths due to the opioid issue, so prescription drug misuse and heroin at that time. Um, So for the state, we were really looking at what can we do to prevent uh, future substance use and how can we support and strengthen the services um, needed to help people that were already dealing with an issue. So maybe before we continue with our story, I'll just let our listeners know all of the interviews for this episode were done either on the phone or through Skype or through FaceTime. So you hear a little bit of noise and the sound is not the greatest always, but that's the nature of technology. Uh, As you know, we did an episode on rural broadband and some of these people are in very rural areas and the broadband (laughs) wasn't exactly very broad. Right. So um, Michelle described the situation in Ohio and as serious as that sounds and is, it's still kind of a departure for the, for the the sorts of things that the Farm Bureau would usually focus on. In general, they tend to focus on things that 
could only be considered agricultural issues. Yeah, and this was totally different for them. Um, it, but it does kind of have an emergency feel to it. Yeah. Why would Farm Bureau get involved in an issue like this? Well, this issue affects everyone. It affects every age. It affects every sex. It affects every um, every person in, in, the, in life. I mean, it affects rural, it affects urban, and, you know, we needed, we really felt in our counties that we needed to get involved because agriculture is a huge part of the community in our counties. In fact, in, in two of my counties, agriculture is the number one industry in the county. In Ohio, agriculture is the number one industry. So certainly a, an issue like opioid overdose and overdose substance use, abuse has really become an issue in the agriculture industry when it comes to families passing down the farm, when it comes to employment, trying to hire employees that are substance-free. I mean, it definitely affects um, everyone in agriculture, so we definitely felt that it was, a, it was an issue that we needed to deal with. So in terms of tackling the problem, they decided that they were going to focus on prevention and education. But the amazing thing, and the really intriguing thing to me as a farm kid myself, is that they went through 4-H. Yeah, and I mean, in so many ways it makes sense. They already had access to youth. They already had a network of counselors in place and programming in place. Um, so with the help of Jody Salvo and her drug use prevention organization, they were able to get that awareness and education campaigns off the ground really quickly, actually. And so as part of that awareness campaign, they also conducted a survey that yielded some pretty interesting results. Yeah. I think the thing that was a little disturbing to me, and maybe maybe the percentage is really good, but almost 50% of those kids, and these are, these are cream of the crop kids, almost 50% of those children, their parents have never talked to them about substance abuse. I found that pretty alarming. Um, even though the, we know those kids, you know, they're active in 4-H and FFA, and they take go to the county fairs and things like that, and they're really great. Most of them are really great kids. That does not mean that they're not affected. They're not tempted to uh, use alcohol and drugs. So that's something that is really a common misconception. I mean, we heard that even from our listeners who listened to the first episode who weren't aware that opioid addiction is such a huge problem in rural areas. It's usually considered an urban problem. Yeah, and it couldn't be further from the truth, and there are a lot of specific sociological reasons related to that. Mm -hmm. So here's Michelle chatting a little bit about the fact that um, we probably need to change our approach to how we see some of these problems. You know, you think that it's not so much in the rural communities, but it really has affected rural communities in Ohio. Uh, we have seen that so much this year. I, there was an article uh, that a lot of people have talked about, a farmer who has had three children, uh, two of them passed away in their 30s, and uh, the other one is in his early 30s, and he is also an addict. And this guy owns several thousand acres. He's like, you know, what's going to happen to my farm? And so we really do see it in the rural areas. And on, on what Jody said, too, uh, we cannot forget that, you know, these kids are starting out at alcohol, and I believe it's age of 12. And so, you know, once they start out on something like that, by the time they get a little bit older, they want something different. They want something, you know, and, and that is the scary part, because you do see that in rural communities. And you see, I mean, you see it everywhere. It's everywhere. 
You know, this really echoes Brian's comments and how he would have these kids for whom, in, on Bell Island, for whom it was a rite of passage at the age of 13, yeah. 14, you know, to go to the woods, come for a couple of days and have drinks. I think anyone who grew up in a rural area, like uh, if I look back on my teenage years, there were always places where you would go, where the kids would go congregate. We had the tracks, we had the pits. It sounds like a goofy show from the 1950s, but it, that's how it was and that's how it still is in some of these rural places. And it's interesting to me that because they recognized that the problem was everywhere, they really focused on the kids and helping them understand that they're not al- alone yeah. out there. Um, so one of the campaigns they organized was called Got Your Back Campaign. Yeah, so this was, um, this was an idea that was deeply rooted in social media, certainly. Um, really simple. They got people from the community to stand back-to-back with kids, and they took photos. Uh, they then made those photos into signs and posters and created this huge amount of awareness around the substance abuse issue. And also, they, they brought in both the kids, but also the people in the community who kids could turn to if they needed help. Yeah, and the kids thought it was really cool because these giant pictures of them were on barns and on signs around the communities. But what I find really interesting is that it allowed Michelle and Jodis organizations to tap um, into parents as well. Yeah. And so once again, that was through the 4-H clubs uh, and through some of the parent advisors and some of the adults who were so important to that to running that organization. Um, so within that context, they, they created a program called Hidden in Plain Sight. We really do feel educating our youth is probably the easier um, part of this substance abuse issue. Engaging parents is probably the more difficult. So we use this exhibit called Hidden in Plain Sight, and it's a mock teenage bedroom. So we bring in a bed and some dressers and stuff like that. And it's stacked with um, risky items, which could be drug paraphernalia, um, alcohol products, just different things that our kids are faced with. And then we educate our adults on those particular issues. So we take what are our kids using, what are they faced with, what is our community data? Like it says, at what age does the kid initiate what substance? And we also have community data on how kids feel about certain drugs. What's the most dangerous? Um, What did their parents speak to them about? And then we take that information and we hand it over to adults so they have a better understanding of this is how your students feel about these issues and what is their Um, words, how can they intervene on those issues? Um, For example, our kids feel tobacco is the most harmful uh, issues of tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, prescription drugs. And we help parents understand they feel that way because they've been educated on it. So we need to increase the education to adults. We've let adults know the most powerful thing for substance abuse prevention is that parental voice. And yet we have the data to show our kids are saying our parents aren't speaking to us. So we help them um, speak to their kids on those issues. What do you say? How can you say this? Um, Because there's a lot of barriers that make it that parents don't speak to their kids. Or if we're speaking to advisors, what can you say? What can you do? So we're creating opportunities in the community as we educate our kids to connect with adults to give them the information that they need to know to protect our kids. So it's really a two-pronged approach that we're using. You know, as we talk to them, uh, I mean, it struck me how prevalent opioid addiction was. I mean, Michelle even shared a personal story about 
her elderly mother who was struggling with opioid addiction, who is fine now, doing much better. Uh, but still, it was even among the elderly. And uh, we did ask, we were curious, how this whole thing came about. Yeah, and Jody and Michelle had a very definitive answer for what is responsible for the flood of opioids in their region. When we look at the opioid epidemic that we're facing in the States, um, one of them is that pain became a fifth vital sign. Um, So what that meant was doctors and hospitals um, were mandated to take care of pain, patient pain, um, which really fueled the opioid epidemic because they tied the management to pain to hospital and doctor reimbursements. So, um, in order for doctors and hospitals to be effectively treating patients, they needed to deal with pain, and how they did that was prescribing prescription opiates. Well, when that all happened, we did not have a good understanding of addiction and prescription opiates, but that mandate stayed in place. So, we realized, looking back, why is pain still considered a fifth vital sign when it's net measurable like the other four are? Um, and if this is something we could address, it will make uh, really huge policy changes in our state and our nation. So I did a little bit of research because I wasn't quite sure what the vital signs are. And the four that Michelle was referring to um, are body temperature, blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing rate. So in the States, pain was proposed as a vital sign in mid-90s, and it became an accepted practice sometime in early 2000s. And of course, with pain added to that list, the rate of opioid prescriptions skyrocketed because physicians generally want to make their patients feel better. And at the time, prescribing opioids was an efficient solution to the problem that was patient pain. Yeah, and, but it came at such a cost. Um, so Farm Bureau is now trying to change that medical policy in order to combat the spread of the opioid addiction and divide availability of prescription opioids in their communities. I mean, you remember Stephen saying, you know, he, he can buy pain medication from an old fisherman who has it prescribed for, for his arthritis. Totally legally. Totally legally, yeah. right? Um, so they, um, they found out they have allies in that particular policy mm-hmm. fight. American Medical Association also uh, has policy to get rid of pain as their, the fifth vital sign, too. So that is something that if American Medical Association can get other large organizations behind them, maybe we can make a difference. I mean, when you go to a doctor's office, they can measure your temperature, your blood pressure, your respiration rate. Those things are measurable. But when they ask you what is your pain on a, on a level of 1 to 10, Anybody can say a 10. Anybody can say a 7. How, you know, and once they do that, they are really, they really need to prescribe something to these people for pain. And I'll tell you, pain medication is the most addictive medication. You know, people get their wisdom teeth pulled and they get, you know, they might have a minor surgery and they get a 30-day supply of opioids when maybe they only needed a day supply, Mm -hmm. maybe not even a day supply. You know, why not start out with something that's not an opioid that's addictive? And that has really been the problem. And and Jody made that clear. You know, we asked her, okay, what policy can we make that we can push forward to Ohio Farm Bureau, to American Farm Bureau, that could really make a difference? 
And this is what Jody suggested, and we were really thrilled when American Farm Bureau accepted that as policy, and we are hoping that they will go forward with that and really try to get something moving on that. So they definitely have a plot. They do, and they're hopeful that they can draw on the sort of close-knit, um, community-focused approach of rural regions in order to make a difference. I think one of the things we're seeing here is the beauty of small towns or rural areas as I think a lot of communities really do care about their communities and their youth. So if we can engage them, I think we can be more effective um, than more than larger urban areas. So I think if we intentionally um, target the communities, I think we can have some great success rates. After we talked to Michelle and Jordi in Ohio, I was really curious about what's the situation with pain management and opioid prescriptions here in Canada. Yep. And that's how you found Dr. Tara Gomes. Who's she? For that one, I actually have to thank Pablo Navarro at the Newfoundland Labrador Center for uh, Applied Health Research. Um, he passed me the information and the contact information for Dr. Gomes. She's an epidemiologist and she works at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And she also teaches at the University of Toronto. Uh, what's really interesting is that she's also a member of the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network which is tasked with providing the advice to policymakers on opioid use. So a lot of our research in the past few years has looked at prescription opioids and opioid-related harm in the province of Ontario. And we have found some really interesting trends around how these drugs are being prescribed and also the rate at which people die of an opioid-related cause across the province of Ontario, which has some very rural areas and some highly urbanized areas. So, for example, uh, some of our statistics have shown that uh, the rate of both opioid prescribing as well as opioid-related deaths are much higher in rural parts of Ontario compared to urban areas. So it can be challenging from a planning perspective to understand how to handle that because we know that the total number of people who die of an opioid overdose in cities like Toronto are very high, even though the rate is low, just because the population is so big. So mm -hmm. we can see more than 100 people die in a year in, in a large city from an opioid-related cause, and those numbers are smaller in rural communities. But the rural communities are so much smaller that the the impact on their community and on the those regions can be really important, even when the number of deaths are small, just because that rate is so high and it seeks to lack of services or lack of accessibility to treatment that um, may mean that people are at higher risk of harm from these products in some of the more rural parts of the province. So does our team know why there's more opioid use happening in rural areas? I asked, and they don't have any definitive research that they could draw conclusions on, but they have some pretty good educated guesses. We can't really confirm any of this, but I think there are a few uh, reasons that people generally speak about. One is that some of the industries that people work in are different in rural versus urban areas, and so you may see more people in rural areas who are doing jobs that require some kind of physical component to them, and that can lead to people being more likely to become injured and then more likely to get some kind of exposure to an opioid from a doctor due to that injury. And the challenge becomes that that can be a domino effect once you have that initial exposure 
exposure, if it uh, if you get a really long prescription or you don't get adequate follow-up, it can turn into some kind of physical dependence, which can lead to developing an, an opioid use disorder in the future. We also know that sometimes uh, prescribers in different regions can really drive the patterns of prescribing because they often train other people and other healthcare professionals who work in their areas. So if you find that there are sometimes thought leaders or um, senior physicians in certain areas who have historically prescribed a lot of opioids in the smaller rural communities, they can have a larger impact on the total amount of opioid that is prescribed because they themselves and the colleagues who they train and interact with all start to have very similar patterns of prescribing. And when those patterns are perhaps inappropriate, that can lead to problems in small communities. Right, and that does make sense. Um, One thing to clarify, though, unlike the United States, here in Canada, pain is not considered a vital sign, correct? Yeah, that's true. And also in our health system, because it's not profit-driven, there is less pressure to um, do things that would ensure profits for the hospital corporations. So um, what Dr. Gomez says is that here in Canada, we have a different problem, and that is not just in Canada, but in many other jurisdictions. I think that a lot of the problems that we have seen in Canada is that training for physicians around pain and pain management has been minimal in medical school. And historically, when it was provided in medical school, it was often sponsored by drug companies like Purdue Pharma, who manufactured opioids. And so there was a huge uh, push towards clinicians being trained to use opioids as first-line options to treat pain. And so as we saw that uh, people become trained and go out into practice and see people who come to them with complaining of pain, and physicians obviously want to try and help their patients, when the main training that these physicians have is that they should turn to often a strong, long-acting opioid as their first-line option in treating that pain, um, that can lead to really harmful consequences. And, and there's certainly a lot of evidence that that is really what started to drive the epidemic that we're in now back in the late 1990s in both uh, the United States and in Canada. Right. So the idea of the the physician using whatever toolkit has been provided has been a challenge. Yeah. And, um, you know, she did refer to the current situation as an epidemic, yep. um, which is the first time that I actually, we, we kept using crisis, mm-hmm. uh, but she referred to it as an epidemic. And um, the numbers she gave me and the quick overview she gave me is, um, it's quite worrisome, mm. actually. The trends in deaths are pretty alarming. Um, When we look at opioid-related deaths, they were pretty stable in the 1990s. The rate was fairly low, um, less than or around 100 people were were dying every year of an opioid-related cause. But what happened was um, in the early 2000s, we started to see rising rates of people dying of opioid-related causes that was tied to a high rate of prescription of OxyContin, which was being uh, marketed very strongly at the same time. And so those those patterns of increased prescribing and increased opioid-related deaths starting in 2000 really mirrored each other for quite a while. But what we've seen is that in the last few years, prescribing has actually started to uh, plateau or even reduce in uh, most parts of Canada. 
but we're continuing to see opioid-related deaths increase. And I think that's what has become really concerning right now is that even though we're actually able to promote more appropriate prescribing, the deaths continue to rise. And that's largely being attributed to the dangers of illicit drugs right now on the street, the contamination of drugs with fentanyl, which can be purchased from overseas and be used to contaminate all kinds of street drugs, and uh, the fact that people who've developed a problematic opioid use disorder may turn to street drugs if they can no longer get their prescribed drugs. And those drugs are so unsafe right now that despite changes in prescription drugs, the deaths just continue to, to skyrocket. So for such a carefully spoken, measured scientist, that's strong language. Yeah, it is. And she is really concerned with fentanyl and the death toll that it's causing right across the country. Yeah, and it's just everything you hear. It's just an incredible, incredibly powerful drug. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really know anything about it except that it's extremely addictive and extremely dangerous and that people can die from being exposed to it um, even for the very first time. Yeah. And that it's often used to lace all sorts of other illicit um, substances. So I asked uh, Dr. Gomes to walk me through the fentanyl issue. So fentanyl really is a is a drug that has been used for a very long time as a prescription medication. It's a patch. It's very potent, and so that's why it comes in a patch form. And you put it on your body, and it slowly releases the opioid over the course of several days into your system. So it can be used a lot of the time in palliative care or in people with very severe chronic pain, and they can be prescribed a patch to get that kind of um, long-term relief from pain. What we've seen in the last few years, though, is that the fentanyl, it's a synthetic opioid. It means it doesn't rely on the poppy plant to create the drug. You can make it chemically in a lab. And so there are labs overseas who are making this synthetic drug and shipping it into Canada. And that is then being mixed into the illegal market. So fentanyl is a really interesting example where we have both a prescribed source and an illicit source that are contributing to the issues that we see um, in opioid-related deaths. Although more recently, it really has been the illicit source that has been driving the the rates that we've seen across the country. So we've heard about community-based solutions to some of the opioid crisis issues here. Um, Did Dr. Gomes say anything about provincial or national level solutions that our team is looking at? Yeah, we had a really good conversation about it. And part of the problem is that the issue is so complicated. And she talked about a couple of initiatives in Ontario, and especially a policy to limit the access to prescribed fentanyl, um, which seems to be quite uh, effective. Hmm. There's been a lot of attention on trying to find solutions and developing both national and provincial opioid strategies uh, across Canada. Um, I think that the funding and the uh, political might uh, towards trying to address this issue has been promising, but Uh, it certainly hasn't been enough. As I said, the death rates continue to rise. So I think where we have seen some success is introduction of programs like uh, a fentanyl patch for patch program in Ontario. We were seeing that um, fentanyl is very potent. It comes in a patch form and can be sold for hundreds of dollars on the streets where people extract the drug from it to, to get high. And so Ontario implemented a program where you could only get a refill of your fentanyl patch prescription if you returned your used patches. So these are like a nicotine patch, essentially. And you have to return those 
those used patches to get new ones to demonstrate that you haven't sold them or you haven't cut them up and tried to extract the drug from them. And so there are initiatives like that, which have been fairly simple to implement, which have helped prevent the diversion of drugs onto the streets. I do think, though, that there are some gaps and a lot of it has focused on the stigma associated with drug use and the fact that uh, what we have been seeing is a hesitation to approve things like supervised consumption sites and other harm reduction opportunities that would really help us address the harm that we're seeing in the community right now among people who use drugs and try to help avoid some of those deaths from occurring while we develop broader plans for improving access to treatment um, for people who've developed an opioid use disorder across the country. So she's really worried about this. She is. And, um, you know, I asked her what does worry her at the moment, and she shared some of those concerns with us. What worries me is that uh, despite the efforts over many years of researchers, clinicians, policymakers trying to address this emerging issue. Uh, It seems that no matter what we do, the death rates continue to rise and they're even accelerating. And so that worries me because there has been attention on this. There has been uh, resources and uh, very smart people trying to figure out what to do to try and address this issue. And and we're still not seeing a change in, in the rate at which people are dying from these drugs. And that really concerns me. I couldn't let her end the interview and that particular note. So I ask her about, you know, the good stuff too. Yep. And and our final two stories today are also going to be looking at some of those small but important bright lights. Yeah, absolutely. So here's Dr. Gomez on what gives her hope. What's given me hope in the last year, I would say, is that there does seem to be a change in the perspectives around the stigma associated with drug use at the political level. There have been some very vocal um, harm reduction workers and people working in this area who have really tried to make people understand that addiction uh, is is a medical issue. It is a mental health illness. And we need to treat it like that and not judge and stigmatize people who've developed problematic opioid use and instead actually provide them with the services and supports that they need to get the help that they they need when they ask for it. So that shift in the conversation that's happened in the last year has been a very positive one and I'm hopeful that it will continue and that we will continue to try and find creative ways of addressing this problem that will actually lead to some change. So aside from the provincial and federal policy to deal with what seems to be a problem with international but also very personal roots, there's a lot going on at the grassroots level. Um, Community organizations and local health practitioners, teachers, uh, law enforcement are all working together to address these addictions issues that are happening in their communities. Yeah, and for example, we had a conversation in the part one with Brian and Susan about what they're doing in their community. Yep, and so now we're going to take you to Thunder Bay in northern Ontario, where we talked with May Cat, a nurse practitioner working in that region. Um, I'm going to let her tell you about the program that she's built and that she's running there. So we've done two things in northwestern Ontario. I work at a high school where you catch me today. Um, We've had a, a, a suboxone treatment program at this high school that we started in 2011. And the reason why we started it is because we had 43% of our high school student body uh, with an opioid addiction. At the time, it was mostly OxyContin. Mm. 
So we had to look for a treatment um, for them. And what was available in the city was methadone. Um, because our students are located in rural and remote communities, we selected Suboxone as the medication that we would use. It's portable. Uh, literature says it's six times safer than methadone. And it's been in Canada now for 10 years. So this is the medication that has worked very well with us. Because we had an adolescent population, we chose to do a low-dose short-term program. So we have a, what they call a taper to discontinuation model, which means our shortest treatment for our students was 30 days and our longest was two years. And we taper them off in there. They don't go back to the opioid drugs and we can discontinue the Suboxone without having them go through withdrawal or craving uh, for the opioid drug. So the rate of students with opioid use disorder was, was frightening. How did the program work? Well, uh, the program worked really well. The key is that they did not, um, they didn't rely just on the addiction treatment. Um, they took care of a lot of other underlying issues and they really, um, they built the treatment into the fabric of the students' lives. So because we're a clinic that's based in our high school, the students would come down between classes and they would get the medication. What we did is we added on what we call wraparound care to them. Uh, so we provided um, counseling, we, divided, uh, we provided healthy diversion programming, and we introduced a lot of culture. So we took um, culture as foundation for the approach that we did. Uh, it talked about heritage, language, uh, family, we were in the middle of a, a suicide crisis in Northern Ontario. Uh, we've lost over 500 young people to suicides. And they, uh, part of their issues or their root causes for the addiction was the grief that they were uh, experiencing. But since we started the program and it was successful, we reached out to remote and rural communities. So their home communities and what we did was we provided a network of 22 Suboxone treatment programs across the north. Wow. So as she explains, it's become something much larger than just the school. And we should mention that Maycat works at Dennis Franklin Cromarty High School, which is a school that's run through the Northern Nishnabi Education Council. They serve Indigenous students from around 20 rural remote communities. And some of those communities are fly in, fly out, right? Yep. Uh, and just like the stories we heard here in Newfoundland, that remoteness created a whole bunch of additional barriers um, to actually developing a program like this. And the fact that they did is amazing. I, I have so many questions yeah. about how they did it. Um, how did they make it work? Well, first of all, they accepted that there were physical constraints to their environment, and they figured out how they could work within that. They knew they needed to do things differently than, for example, you know, downtown Vancouver. Because we're rural and remote, we did things differently. We don't do things the way that you would see in an urban methadone program. We don't collect a lot of urine drug screening because we don't believe that urine drug screens can really tell you if you're a good parent or if you have the potential to be a good worker. Um, we can use um, urine drug screens for, for other purposes, but it wasn't a big part of our program. Finding employment education training and reuniting families and children was the focus that we had. 
we don't have uh, pharmacies, so we have lay people. So we've trained what we call unregulated care providers. So these would be people who are working in the community um, as mental health counselors, as community workers, and sometimes as parents, and they would administer the medication daily. Uh, as clinicians, again, we wanted to avoid diversion of the, the drug, and so by having other people administer the medication daily was one of the ways that we could accomplish that goal. So as you can tell, in some ways it's a simple approach, but it is also very much complex in the fact that everyone has a role. It's a collaborative way of dealing with, with the challenge. And they've been able to accomplish so much in the past six years. They've turned things around. Um, so here's May sharing some of those accomplishments. February of 2011 is where we started the high school program. We put 63 students through that program over a course of five years. We no longer have an opioid problem in our school, so we have, we have no one on Suboxone. The other programs that we have in the communities, we have about 3,000 people on Suboxone across this 22 uh, programs, and they're all going through um, different uh, dosages and, and different uh, times that they've been in treatment. So what we saw in our high school is we could graduate students. We've graduated 14 of, uh, of the students that we had here. We were able to keep them alive. I think that was one of our biggest accomplishments. And we were able to have them meet some of their goals um, that they set out in their life. Now, in the community programs, we were able to do, um, there was a group of researchers who was able to do a research project. And they found that things like school attendance went up by 33% in the school. Child protection rates uh, dropped by 58.3%. Uh, criminal charges uh, fell by 61%. And they were looking at things like immunization rates went up 350% when you can offer treatment. So when you look at a public health response, the needle exchange dispensing decreased by um, by 50% as well. And the medical evacuations, we have fly-in communities, that dropped by 30% as well. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a, it's a truly transforming process. And it just shows, too, all of the areas. You know, we, we were saying, well, what does the Farm Bureau have to do with opioid addiction? This just shows... Um, how far-reaching the impacts can be, the fact that things like immunization rates were, were altered. I mean, it's, it's so broad. Yeah, and it's, you know, it really does take, we hear, heard that over and over and over again in Ohio and Newfoundland and Thunder Bay. It really takes the entire community to make this happen. Yeah, that's the really important lesson that I think we can take from this. Um, the other important thing is that you need partners, you need to be collaborating. Um, and you also have to understand that the clinical care and the community support systems have to be adaptable and they have to reflect the regions where they are. They need to be working together um, in ways that make sense for the, for the areas that they're serving. Okay, so organizing the, the treatment program, the clinical part of the program was a challenge, but I think we were able to adjust. What we would do is from clinically follow clinical guidelines and standards, we were still able to do that, but we only adjusted for geography. 
And so when you take a medication, we have medication shipped to our communities all the time for other other medical conditions. This medical condition, um, for this medical condition of uh, opioid use disorder, we had medications that were sent up to the community. Workers who would, you know, keep it safe to ensure that, you know, it wasn't uh, being diverted. And then they would give it to the clients every day. And there would be a way to record the... Um, the, the medication to make sure it got to the right person. So that was one of the pieces. The second piece, the community had control over. They're the ones who did the aftercare and the counseling and other organizations were involved. But if all our programs were under the jurisdiction of chief and council. So when you have the leader saying, we want treatment, we want to be able to use our culture, use our community resources, and you work for me as a clinical person, it's not the other way around, right. then you can actually see people working together very well and working to meet the needs of the clients, not their own needs. Hmm. You mentioned that building partnerships beyond immediate community was also an important part of the whole program. Yep, and these partnerships covered uh, a very wide range of services and supports. But key to it all was building in enough flexibility to allow those practitioners on the ground to, um, to make some decisions about appropriate treatments for, for the conditions that they were working in. Yeah, I think the partnerships are really important. Um, so I'm a nurse practitioner. Uh, to get our, our program started, we work with physicians. We're lucky in Ontario that we have 3,100 nurse practitioners and we can prescribe Suboxone. We don't have a high interest in prescribing methadone. Um, so when you look at the, the type of medication that works better in the lifestyle of the client, the choice of, of medication is key. So the partnership with social services, with um, um, people who provide uh, income, housing, and employment are so important for the clients to be able to change their lives. Mm. They have accomplished, in a relatively short time, a lot. Does you think that this model is, in some ways, transferable to the rest of rural Canada? Yeah, um, I was sort of, uh, you know, blown away when she, when we first started speaking to her. She mentioned that one of the reasons that things had gotten bad was because people had lost their way of life in terms of hunting, trapping, fishing, and some of the ways that adults in the communities would have made money in the past. And she actually said, "It's just like what's happened." in your province, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and she was referring to the fishery here, that was a connection that I had never considered. Um, but, you know, she sees those sort of linkages. And once again, um, it's all about preserving that flexibility and recognizing that different places need different solutions. Um, but there are things that we can learn from each other, too. I think it can happen in your region and any other rural and, and remote region in Canada. What we did was we said the community has to be in charge of addressing uh, opioid addiction as well as the overdose crisis. In Canada, we're looking at loss of life that we've never seen before from uh, people using drugs. And I think our policies have to change. And it's funding that needs to be at the community level so you can provide support, look at employment. We lost our economy in our communities, right? Uh, we had traditional ways of, of hunting, fishing, and trapping. In your 
part of the country, you've lost your economy, mm-hmm. you've lost your fishing industry. So we've had to retrain and we've had to replace activities that were, you know, so much a part of who we were as, as a people. And we've done that by, um, by offering other job opportunities for people, looking at the cost of living and, and why is it so expensive to buy food? I mean, you're in the same situation. But I think using mothers, families, uh, people who are are just advocates in in healthcare involved in treatment. I think you have to take the the mystery away from what is opiate agonist treatment, and you have to put it in your own hands and saying we're going to do this because we're going to save the lives of our children. You know, I would really like Susan and Brian to meet May. I think that we have so much to talk about. Yeah, they've all done so much in terms of really getting to understand the needs of where they are living. And also they have this faith in not just their communities, but even individuals, you know, both have, have just mentioned the, the role of mothers, for example. Yeah. Um, Mama bears. Mama bears. What, uh, that was what Susan and Brian kept on referring back to, but they have faith in that. And I think that you see these successes and you can't help, but uh, get on board with what she's doing. Mm. How does she feel about all of this now? She's, of course, really proud of the work of her team. She doesn't take a lot of personal credit for it. Um, she puts a lot of the um, she, she puts a lot of it on the young people in the community who have actually been through the program and who have who have worked so hard for themselves. It, it's the the young people who've been able to change their lives to go on and say, yes, that was a bad experience, but it was a lesson that I've learned. I'm going to continue on with my life. I'm going to have children. I'm going to make families. I'm going to be a responsible community member. That, I think, is one of the, you know, gratifying uh, parts of being a nurse is that you can actually see people uh, get well. She was so good at walking us through the process and what it takes to heal a community. Uh, She was, and I really like how she gave us this sense that dealing with the opioid crisis is kind of a community effort. We heard that everywhere. Um, that with everybody that we talk to. And it's going to be very much the uh, part of this last little bit. And uh, I had the pleasure to speak with Justice Peter Wright, um, who runs a rural drug treatment court in Perth, Ontario, for Lanark County, but also for the United Counties of Leeds and Granville. They're all in relatively close proximity to Ottawa. And the justice system is something we haven't discussed too much just yet. Um, It sounds like, uh, you know, knowing what we know about this issue in rural places, it may be that Justice Wright has his hands quite full. Um, He does have his hands full, and uh, he's the first one to tell you that it's really complicated. Um, So his judge duties in Perth, um, he does everything. Mm. He does everything from preliminary hearings to administrative duties for the Lanark County, which has about 60,000 people. Right. But the drug treatment court serves two counties, Lanark and also the combined Leeds and Grenville counties. Right. So that's where it gets complicated. And I'll let Justice Wright explain this bit. What we did was we almost have a, uh, I guess, a sister jurisdiction. Uh, Lanark is uh, uh, a county uh, uh, which is quite large. And it adjoins uh, another primarily rural jurisdiction called Leeds-Grenville. And the, the county seat for, uh, for uh, Leeds-Grenville is Brockville. 
the the local bar, the lawyers, um, quite frequently will will represent clients in both uh, both of the uh, the courts in Perth and in Brockville. And Brockville has a, um, uh, a psychiatric uh, facility. They have uh, one of the hospitals there from the Royal Ottawa Psychiatric um, uh, Group of Hospitals. So what we, we thought was, uh, first of all, if we combined, if, if we pooled resources and we were able to offer uh, services to both uh, people in Leeds, Grenville, and Lanark uh, out of the Perth court, that we could run a drug treatment court that would service both uh, both locations. And then uh, kind of, I, I guess, being creative, we thought, well, it would be nice, in addition to being able to have a drug treatment court, to have a mental health court. So what we thought was, well, logically... Uh, it would make sense to operate if we were going to combine the two jurisdictions for these specialty courts. So in all other regards, we still keep all of the criminal cases in Lanark and they keep all of the criminal cases in Leeds-Grenville, but that we would we would make an exception for the mental health cases and that Brockville would then take the uh, the, the, uh, the cases that would be in a mental health court uh, for both jurisdictions, and we would take the drug treatment cases for both jurisdictions and deal with those in Perth. So the thinking was, because I'd had experience in, in starting a drug treatment court, that I would do the drug treatment court part in Perth, and that the Brockville judges would look after the mental health court in Brockville. Uh, and the thinking behind that is because they had the the psychiatric facility in their in their city. We then started looking for uh, um, uh, a treatment provider uh, who's going to provide the services for counseling for addiction uh, 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 services. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, the the group that we we settled on was Lanark Leeds Grenville Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, which provided both uh, addiction and mental health services in both in both jurisdictional locations. It was almost, um, um, uh, you know, as things started to fall into place, it was almost um, too good to be true that that the the uh, the treatment group that we we approached not only did mental health and addiction, but were we're based in both of our locations. Uh, yeah, I, I think that this is an interesting one, again, in that uh, they're dealing with what's available in their region. They're really saying, okay, here's what we have. What can we make work out of this? Um, another thing he mentioned, though, is that he already had experience with drug treatment courts. Yeah, he's an interesting um, character. <laughs> See, he uh, helped establish um, the Ottawa Drug Treatment Court. Um, the first drug treatment court, the day based the Ottawa court, was in Toronto. Right. And then we got one in Vancouver and one in Edmonton. So it was a very urban solution mm-hmm. to some of these issues. So that begs the question, what exactly is a drug treatment court? So it's a, it's a really an elaborate system. 
It essentially recognizes that some people with addictions would be better served by the justice system if we could approach their cases differently than regular criminal cases. Uh, I'm going to let Justice Wright explain how this works. It's going to be a little bit longer clip, probably the longest clip we played in this uh, episode. They come into the drug treatment court, they plead guilty, and uh, they're then released on an undertaking with certain rules. And those rules are that they have to show up at court on time every week. Uh, they have to report to treatment and, and be uh, at treatment uh, whenever they're required. Uh, and the individual comes back to court now every week, um, and there'll be a report from treatment. The report will indicate that the, the, the participant has uh, complied with the expectations of treatment. They've not used drugs or alcohol. They get um, uh, a verbal pat in the back. They, the court would say uh, praise, and they would get a coffee cart so that the, the successful completion of a week uh, results in a coffee cart. Um, if they've used, uh, but they admit the use, they come to treatment and say, look, you know, I, I slipped up, I, I, used, um, I used cocaine. Uh, we don't punish people for, for use because they're an addict, and the expectation is that if it was that easy, to, you know, to stop using drugs that we wouldn't need to have a drug treatment court. So someone comes to uh, court and treatment says, well, so-and-so has reported use, but they were honest about it, we're working with them, then there's no punishment. They don't get their coffee card for that week, but they're, they're, they're encouraged to be, uh, to be forthcoming and to be honest so that treatment can continue to work with them. Um, it doesn't seem like a... Um, um, I guess all that big a deal, you know, you're getting a, a coffee card, but for the participants, it's it can be really significant. I remember when I was in Ottawa, uh, we had one participant who was going to a, a medical appointment and the treatment provider had showed up at her room to take her and had come into her room and uh, saw that she had all of the coffee cards that she'd ever won were jammed around the mirror in her room. And the uh, the worker said, "Look, you know, you've got twenty coffee cards here. You you haven't used any of them." And the 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 lady said, "No, I I I'm not going to use any of them. I, every day I get up and I look at those, and those remind me that that every one of those represents a week of being clean." Wow. So it's an incredible story, and it's also a really complex system. So how do you even set something up like that across county jurisdictions, your federal, your provincial jurisdictions, and all of the other service providers who would be engaged in that kind of, in that kind of work? Uh, you know, it takes time, first of all. But interestingly, when I asked about that, because it seemed just beyond possible, um, it brought it, he brought it right back to the importance of the community. So to start off, with, to start a team, what you need to do is have the community on board. So uh, initially, there were a lot of meetings with the with the provincial crowns, the federal crowns, court administration, um, the the defense lawyers, and with the proposed uh, the proposed uh, treatment uh, providers, so that we could make sure that we all understood what we were trying to do, how we would do it, and that we we're all on the same page. We wanted to involve the police, to have them on board that, that, you know, that they would understand this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, that there's a logical reason why drug treatment courts work and how that's 
a benefit to everybody. So there, yeah, there is a lot of preliminary work to be before you get off the ground. You have to get these people on board. You have to work out what the rules are going to be, who gets to apply, what kind of charges will we include, uh, what kind of uh, expectations are there before someone can graduate, uh, what is the outcome when someone graduates. Uh, typically uh, in Canada, if someone graduates from drug treatment court, they don't go to jail. So that's a, that's a real carrot, that you've got someone who may be looking at six months or 12 months or 18 months in jail you participate in a drug treatment court program and you graduate, uh, that, that you, you don't go to jail. So that's, that, that's a very attractive uh, carrot, an offer for people to participate. Wow, so the stakes are high. Um, what actually does happen at the graduation? Oh, you can probably imagine that it's a really emotional ceremony mm. for everybody. And not everybody graduates. Right. Um, if you slip up, you can, since you... Um, plead guilty, um, you get sentenced. Mm. Um, there is a 30-day grace period, so if you decide that the program is not for you, you can go back, uh, you can withdraw the plea and go back to trial. Right. Uh, but the graduation itself is um, it's kind of a special time. Graduations are very emotional. Uh, it's, uh, they're humbling. It's a great experience for everyone to see someone who has Basically, they've, they've managed to turn their life around. You know, they've, they've gone from having no place to live, uh, having often very poor health. Uh, one of the first things that will happen is that somebody comes into treatment, they get a health cart. Many of our people coming into drug treatment courts, you know, they don't have any ID. They don't have a health card. They haven't been to a doctor or dentist for 20 years. Uh, th- there are often really significant health issues. They haven't been eating properly. So you're, you're seeing physical changes uh, from the time that someone comes into drug treatment court until the time they graduate. They, you know, they, look, they look much, much better. They've got confidence. They're proud that they've, uh, they've gone through this program. They've, you know, they, they, they will often, um, uh, as maybe as part of the volunteer work, that will be that will be part of the treatment program. The, the the place that they're doing the volunteer work may have hired them on full time. You see that, so there's a real a real sense of accomplishment, and and rightly so. We expect a lot, but if you don't if you don't aim high, then you you know you don't have a chance of that kind of accomplishment. Wow. So how did Justice Wright become involved in all of this? What's his story? That is a great question that I didn't ask to my journalistic shame. I thanked Justice Wright for his time at the end of the interview, and before he hanged up, he told me this story. You know, one of the biggest problems for specialty courts, uh, drug court or mental health court or First Nations courts, um, is that the legal profession is, um, uh, is very conservative. Uh, we're not that adaptable to change. And I got to tell you, when, you know, when I first heard about drug treatment court in Toronto, I thought it was really interesting, but I thought, that's not for me. I couldn't do that. I couldn't uh, go into court and be a social worker. It was sometime in the late 1990s or early 2000s that I was in the, the guilty plea court in Ottawa. And uh, it's a very, very busy court. We, you know, people who step forward want to plead guilty. You have a judge in there and you just... You do guilty pleas just nonstop all day long. 
and uh, I was I was having people coming forward, and they were saying, you know, Justice Wright, I, you know, I, I know that everybody's agreed that I'm going to get eight months in jail or ten months. Could I please um, uh, get treatment if you could just send me for treatment? And I'm looking at the record, and and I'd say, no, you know, unfortunately, uh, I, you know, I can't do that. The um, the, the, the guidelines that I have in terms of sentencing are that, you know, you got six months the last time. So, uh, you know, I'm going to give you eight months this time, but I really encourage you when you get out of jail to seek treatment. And I remember sitting there looking at somebody's criminal record and it went back 20 years and, um, uh, they, you know, they start off, they get a fine, they get a discharge, they get probation, they get probation, they get probation, then they get a short amount of jail and then they get more and more jail. And, and for the last maybe 10 years, they've been getting nothing but jail. And I remember it was sort of like a little light going on. I looked at this and I thought, well, you know, it's not working. Whatever we're trying to do here is not working. Maybe uh, this, this drug treatment thing that I'd heard about, maybe it's not such a bad idea. You know, what have we got to lose? You give somebody a chance to, to change things around. Uh, if they screw up, if they're not going to participate, they're still going to jail. You know, what have we lost? And, uh, and for some people it, 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 some people, it really works. Wow. So his was kind of a transformation story as well. Yes. And I almost didn't get that story because <laughs> I never asked the question. <laughs> well, I'm glad he supplied it. Um, he's really convinced that this is something we need to implement across the country. Um, so absolutely. He thinks this can work anywhere in Canada, we, but he does insist that we have to work closely with the communities to make sure that whatever we set up is the system that's appropriate to that particular region. Yep, and that's a common thread between all of the incredible stories that we've heard as part of this two-part series from Stephen Miller, Susan Boone, and Brian Reese, uh, all Newfoundlanders or living in Newfoundland and Labrador from our last episode to all the voices and stories that we heard today. Yeah, and it's, you know, it struck me for this story, uh, we knew it's going to be a difficult topic, but everybody's been so generous with their mm -hmm. time, sharing their knowledge. This time we heard from Michelle Specht and Jody Salway in Ohio, Justice Peter Wright from Perth, Ontario, May Cat in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and from Dr. Tara Gomes in Toronto. So that's the end of another episode. Before we go any further, I want to say that today we are not two, we're three. That's true. We have with us another Rebecca. Hi. So Rebecca Nolan is our volunteer producer. Yeah, and it's been really fun. I get to see everything behind the scenes, all the levels, all the lights. Yeah, I don't know how much of behind the scenes there is because we don't have much time to do this. But she's definitely going to make us sound a lot better. Oh, she's going to make us sound way better. No pressure. So, and I actually thought we should call out to the other person who's helping us behind the scenes these days, Laura. That's right. Laura McCurdle is our policy intern who has been calling community radio stations across the country and helping them air rural roots. And you know what else she's done? She has created a Twitter page for us. That's right. So that's something that people can look up now, too. Okay, we'll make uh, that available through our website. Absolutely. And I guess this is the end of another episode. Yep. As always, Rural Roots is produced at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we do that here at CHMR Campus Radio Studio. 
We produce this show in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. And the show is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. We love them. We do. Um, <laughs> you can hear us on our website at ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's Rural Roots Podcasts. Roots is R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. And we are also available through your favorite podcasting app and on community and campus radio stations across the country. My name is Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Boyan Fierce. See you next time. Bye.